Okay, today is January the 6th, 2011, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Also remember that this is a communion Sunday, and even though if you haven't signed up yet, it's not too late to let Mary know and just let us plan the best we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day to study your mighty word so that we can know not only what's going on now, but also in the future. And as we reflect on the past, we can reflect on your faithfulness and also the mistakes and errors that we've made. We can learn from them and be able to better obey your word and be ambassadors for Christ. So we pray that you will help us to focus on the eschatology that we will be studying this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to get right to it. We have a very large amount of information. And we started this Tuesday night. And we didn't finish it. Hopefully we will tonight. But we're just going to start where we did last time. For some of you it will be a quick review. Others may see this for the first time. When First Thessalonians, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter one, and we are focusing on the baptism of fire, the second advent, and so we're getting a magnifying glass, and we're going to see in chronological order and in detail what goes on when Jesus Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. There is a lot of things that happen at that time. You have to go all over the Bible to get the information, to put the pieces together so you can rightly divide the word of truth. Much of what I'm going to be giving you is from an article by Arnold Frutenbaum. And the name of the article is The Campaign of Armageddon and the Second Coming of Jesus Messiah. And again, I will email these notes to anyone who would want them. If you don't have a computer, we can get you hard copies of these. This article was given at the Pre-Trib Research Study Group in Dallas, December 2000. And the things that you see in here that are in italics, I'm actually quoting. And the things that are not are just my own statements. This is recorded in Volume 5 of the Conservative Theological Journal, 2001. And this is the Tyndale Theological Seminary put this together here. Two climactic events of the Great Tribulation are the campaign of Armageddon and the Second Coming. We refer to that usually as the Second Advent. A considerable amount of data is given about the time period in scriptures. One of the greatest difficulties in the study of eschatology, you all know what eschatology is, I hope, That's the study of future things. So the 
difficulty in the study of eschatology is placing these events in chronological sequence in order to see what exactly will happen in the campaign of Armageddon. Um, the campaign of Armageddon can be divided into eight stages and this will facilitate the understanding of the sequential events. So, <coughs> we're looking at the stages, in stages, things that will take place when Christ returns, second advent. I spent most of the day today putting all this together in another, well, I don't know what you call it, an article or just a paper that I wrote that simplifies what you're hearing tonight. It's not as much detail. It's mainly scriptures as to how all this takes place. But we will get into that once we finish this article with regards to these eight stages. And the first stage is the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist. Certain things have to happen before Jesus Christ returns. Because there's a lot of prophecy, detailed prophecy in certain locations. And as I told you Tuesday night, prior to the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist, the Jews need to be regathered to Israel. And I will reflect that on the next paper that I'm going to show you that I was working on today. But that's just to help you realize that God is in control and that part has already been accomplished. Israel is back in the land. They are a nation, even though in unbelief. They have to be there for Antichrist to assemble his forces against the Jews, against Israel. And so that's already been accomplished. So what we're looking at here has not been accomplished yet, at least not in the detailed fashion that the Bible describes. So this has to take place before Christ is going to return Antichrist is going to amass huge armies for a defense against not only the Lord himself, but it's also to wipe out the Jews. The reason that Satan is going to be so focused on eliminating the Jews is because by the time all this takes place, his time is just about run out. He's going to be desperate. And he knows that if he can annihilate the Jews... He's won the angelic conflict. God has made unconditional covenants to the Jews. And if Satan can wipe out the Jews, then God cannot keep his promise to them. And so that's what he's going to try to do. Keep that in mind as we look at these scriptures and the facts about the assembling of the armies of Antichrist. So the campaign of Armageddon will begin with the sixth bold judgment in Revelation chapter 16 verses 12 through 16 which I have below. But remember <clears throat> things happen in order and in stages and the tribulation is going to first of all have the seal judgments the seven seal judgments and the seventh seal opens up the, six, the, the seven trumpet judgments and the seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowl judgments. Now, when we're talking about the sixth bowl judgment, it's nearly over. There's only one more judgment after that, which is the seventh, and we'll describe that in this paper. Kind of give you an idea of what's going on. Now, if you have any questions as I go through this, I'll, I'll try to answer them the best I can because we're going to be going all over in the Old Testament, New Testament, 
into uh, prophecy books that we don't normally go into. So, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12 through 6, uh, excuse me, 12 through 16, is describing the sixth bowl judgment. Sometimes, it, some translation says a vial or a bowl. It's just judgment being poured out. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and the water dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And you notice I have that underlined. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for war of the great day of God the Almighty." Now, all this is saying, essentially, is that the unholy trinity, where we have, uh, as it is described here, they're, they're like, uh, like the frogs. The spirits are like frogs. You have the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they're putting a call out. They're trying to gather all the armies of the world, every nation, to come and join them in their enterprise of trying to get uh, attacking the Jews and getting ready, essentially, to do war against the Lord. And the call goes out, and the reason it has, uh, and there are spirits of demons performing signs. There are going to be miraculous things that demons are going to be able to do to encourage and enhance or to maybe even coerce nations to be, participating in this. Now, there's other prophecies that shows that they are going to be successful. Every nation of the world is going to go against Jerusalem and Israel. That's why when someone asks you, do you think that the United States will ever actually go against or betray Israel? Do you think they'll ever be? And the answer is, well, of course they are. If that is if we're still a nation when this happens. We will go against them because every nation will go against them. And then verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk around naked and men will not see his shame. Now this is parenthetical. It's just saying that they're not going to expect Jesus Christ uh, to come in the way he does. It's going to be unexpected and, and, and very uh, quickly. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew, called Har-Mageddon. We call it Armageddon. And it's important to note that they're going to be gathered there. This is the gathering place where all these nations are going to come. Now, it's customary to associate the kings of the east of Revelation 16:12 with the 200 million of Revelation 9:16. However, neither consistency of exegesis nor the structure of the book of Revelation will allow for this. Remember I said I had underlined the kings of the east? Now this is at the sixth bowl judgment in Revelation 16. And you have to go all the way back to Revelation 9 to see, pick up the 200 million. The 200 million and the kings of the east belong to two different judgments that must be kept distinct and cannot be combined. So the 200 million of the trumpet judgment they're under the trumpet judgments. That's the, the middle one. Remember, there's three, three judgments that are going to take place. The seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. The 200 million are in the trumpet judgments, 
and the kings of the east are in the bold judgment. So you can't necessarily combine those two. It's going to happen at a different time, and it's not even the same judgments. Now, many identify the 200 million of Revelation 9 as Chinese, but the 200 million of Revelation 9 are described as demons, not men. The kings from the east are not Chinese either. Now, I don't know, I, maybe I shouldn't be that dogmatic, but I believe you're on safe ground to pretty well assert that because uh, Dr. Frutenbaum makes a pretty strong argument here. And here's, I'm quoting him. Everywhere else in Scripture, the east always refers to Mesopotamia, which is Assyria and Babylon. So where is that now? Where is the Mesopotamia? Well, how about Iraq? Yeah. How about Iran? Uh, how about, uh, th that is a very, <laughs> already there's a lot of turmoil going on there, so the ground is being prepared. Consistency, dem consistency demands that this too would be a reference to Mesopotamia and not to China. Matthew 2.1, the fact that the Antichrist's capital city of Babylon will sit on the banks of the Euphrates River further attests to the fact that the kings who come from the east will be Mesopotamian kings. Now, I said before, I'm not sure that the Babylon is going to be on the banks of the Euphrates River. That's up for discussion. However... Thus, consistency of interpretation also militates against matching this reference with China. Consistency of interpretation and not current events must be the basis of determining the meaning of any given text. Now, we went into just like we, we went into Zechariah before, and we see and in Daniel, and sometimes they will give certain locations of things that are taking place, uh, like they will ca call Cush. Well, we don't have Cush today, but from the description, we know where it's talking about, and so we can make a correlation of the nation that may be there today. That, that's fine and dandy to do. But you can't take necessarily when it's saying the east, meaning that part of the world, and now say, oh, well, no, we're going to go another 1,000 miles or however far it is and include China. You see why the argument he's making there. Yes, Noreen. Uh-huh. Well, that's why I'm not handling that right now because there's, and I don't want to get off on that dog trail because it, it will take our focus off the whole flow of what's going here. That's why I said I'm not, sh I'm not saying that I buy into that particular uh, idea that there's going to be the capital city of Babylon is going to be on the Euphrates River. I can tell you I've been to several uh, conferences and there's been theologians that are on both, not only on both sides of the river, but on both sides of the issue. So uh, I, I don't want to address that right now. Uh, maybe I should have just blocked that part out, but it's part of the quote. So, Notice in Revelation 16, 13 through 16, that a call goes out throughout the world to the allies of Antichrist, to gather or assemble together at Armageddon for war. It doesn't say that there's a battle that's going to go on there. That's where many people, and I was included in that group, that always assumed that uh, it was Armageddon is where the big uh, battle is going to take place. I've uh, 
Well, it used to be channel 14. Now it's uh, channel 22, which I refer to as the nut channel. That you have, I shouldn't do that probably because there are some good things on here. But I've seen Paul Crouch and other people get on there. They're at the location of Armageddon and they're looking out over the great area and they're saying one day there's going to be masses of army and the big battle is going to take place there. Well, I used to agree with that, but after uh, studying this, I don't think that can be supported. So just if you think that, just hang on and we'll see what, what it says. Another quote, the summons will be reinforced by demonic activity to make sure that the nations will indeed cooperate assembling their armies and these demonic messengers will be empowered to perform signs in order to assure compliance. That's probably one reason that it says that all nations will go against Israel. Of course, it does not say that that actually takes place there. I've already made it uh, that point. It should be noted that the passage says nothing of a battle in this valley for no fighting will take place there. The valley of Jezreel will merely serve as the gathering ground for the armies of the Antichrist. The valley of Jezreel is that same area where actually uh, there's a mountain there called Har is Mount and Megiddo, the, the mountain of Megiddo, and there's a city there called Megiddo, but it's called the Jezreel, Jezreel Valley. So they're pretty much synonymous when you think about Armageddon and the Valley of Jezreel. So this huge area is going to be a gathering place. They're going to mass there, and from there they're going to move out to different locations. Another quote here. While the term Battle of Armageddon has been commonly used, it is really a misnomer for more than one battle will be taking place. For this reason, many prophetic teachers have stopped employing that term and are using the term Campaign of Armageddon, as is, as is this paper. But this too is a misnomer because there will be no fighting in Armageddon itself. All of the fighting will take place elsewhere. A more biblical name for this final conflict is found in the closing words of verse 14 where it calls the battle, or, the, or Armageddon, what we normally refer to as the war of the great day of God the Almighty. That's kind of long, but that would be biblically more accurate than calling it the campaign of Armageddon or the Armageddon battle or anything else because there won't be a battle there. It appears, it appears like this is just the gathering place and the battles are actually going to take place elsewhere, which we'll get into in a few moments. So what is God's view of this gathering? Of course, he's not frightened. He mocks them. I love this. You could go to Psalm chapter 2, and it talks, Why do the heathens rage and the, and the people imagine a vain thing? This is referring to this same gathering. They're thinking, well, look at how many forces we have. Look at all, all of our military might. And they're imagining a vain thing. And in Psalm chapter 2, God is doing the same thing that he's doing here in Joel chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. He's laughing. He's not worried. In fact, he's bringing it about. This is only happening because he has orchestrated it. He's the one that brought Israel to the land, getting ready for this to culminate. He's the one that put it in the hearts of all of these unbelievers and these kings, these unbelieving kings, to amass all their forces against him. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. 
Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plows into sh- uh, your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. So the Lord is calling all these weak. But he says, go ahead. Let them call themselves mighty as if they have a chance against the creator of the universe. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. This is sarcasm. This is a a taunt. The second stage will be the destruction of Babylon. Throughout the second half of the tribulation, Babylon will be both the center of the world economy and the world of political center. Now, last time you'll remember, I took you to Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. And in Revelation chapter 17, you see Babylon, religious Babylon, because there's going to be a one world religion. And it goes down in flames by the time you get to the end of Revelation chapter 17. And, then, and that's going to take place at, uh, around the midpoint of the tribulation, probably right after the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist is going to use the one world religion because it furthers his means up to a point. But by three and a half years, he's through using them, and now he is going to be demanding to be worshipped. He's going to take over everything. That means that they have to go. And we looked at the verses that show where they were the, they're going to be burned with fire. They're going to eat their flesh of the religion. I, sh- I told you about Daniel. You look at the woman that rides the beast, the ten horns. The woman that rides the beast is this one world religion. Ten horns. I don't know whether they're just ten kings or ten regions, whatever it is. It's ten areas or men that have great power. But in the first vision, in the first thing, you see the woman, which is this worldwide religion, riding the beast, which is like Antichrist, and these ten horns are not crowned. They're, they're there, they're in place, but they're not really functioning. They're kind of holding back. By the time you get to Revelation 18 and the uh, abomination of desolation has taken place, what occurs at that point is uh, Antichrist is going to wipe out the religion The next thing Daniel sees is the beast. This time, the woman is not riding it because she has been removed because now he's taking over. And the ten horns that were there, not crowned, now have crowns on them showing that now he is functioning through these ten kings. He is using them to dominate the entire world politically and economically. He is using his forces to do that. We went over that last time. Hopefully you'll remember that. We actually went to the scriptures. So, throughout the second half of the tribulation, Babylon... Now, the second half, remember, is not going to be dominated by one world religion. That's going to be past. And now it's dominated politically and economically. Economically, you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark on your hand or on your forehead. Economically, politically, anyone that helps a Jew in any way will be executed. These are the things that will be going on. So um, the last, the second half of the tribulation, Babylon will be both the center of world economy and the world political center. But later in the second stage of the campaign of Armageddon, see he's using it campaign of Armageddon because that other um, 
the war of the great God of Almighty and so forth so long. You know what he's talking about. Babylon will suffer a sudden devastation. Several passages are concerned with the future destruction of this city. The ruin of Babylon is associated with the restoration of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 19 through, uh, 19 through 20. In other words, when religious and economical Babylon is destroyed, it's going to be connected with the restoration of Israel because it's going to be Jesus Christ coming right at the end and he's going to wipe, wipe them out. What do we know that as? Baptism of fire. Israel is viewed as restored in her land with all her sins forgiven so that no one will ever even be able to find her sins anymore. This restoration is to be a result of the annihilation of Babylon and can hardly be true of ancient Babylon. So this, these texts can't be referring to anything in the ancient time because there's never been a time where Israel, uh, you won't be able to even find her sins anymore. What's the deal there? Not Certainly not in the past. And I showed you last time, sometimes a scripture will be giving prophecy of the immediate future, but also have a further, more uh, later date in mind where it is covering that also. Verse 17. Now, the reason that's read is because that's where we ended last time. Uh, just so I would, a reference point for me. Revelation 17 deals with religious, but this is what I just told you, uh, Babylon and Revelation 18 deals specifically with the political and economical Babylon that will rule the world for three and a half years after religious Babylon has been destroyed. That takes place in Revelation 17. The passage begins with a declaration of the fall of religious Babylon and the sadness and weeping over the demise of those who profited from her. So there's going to be a lot of people that were in league with this one world religion and they liked it because they profited from it. No doubt there, was, there are going to be some who have great power and they can lord it over. There's going to be, it talks about merchants on the sea and how they profit from this enterprise with the one world religion. I'm not sure how it works out, but it just mentions that. And they are all going to weep. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 18, they are unhappy campers because all that has been wiped out Antichrist is now demanding that he be worshipped. This new economic system where you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast. All that is going to be in place in this last three and a half years that are going to happen. And a lot of people aren't going to like it. Yes, Cindy. Ready to be point of the tribulation. it. It's just I'm giving you a little more detail that the Nako Babylon, which Antichrist is going to be the ramrod of, is all going to be destroyed. All okay. We just this the third deals with the most fall. At least not all of Jerusalem. At least half of Jerusalem is going to fall. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 3 and Zechariah 2 says that all the nations of the earth gather Jerusalem. Half of the city will be taken, but the other half. Hold on. There are going to be Jews there that do um, by force of the Antichrist will not come easily. God will grant the Jews who stand in the burden themselves with Jerusalem will be sorely wounded and will be, uh, burdensome, uh, uh, will be burdensome to them. This energizing of the Jewish forces in the battle for Jerusalem 
is further described in Micah chapter 4, verse 11, and I've got 11 through 5. That should be 11 through, I think it's 13. But we're going to get those verses later. One reason that when we get through with this, this article, I'm, this, is, this is not the article. The article was much longer than this. I'm just giving you the, the, the highlights of it, enough for you to see what's going on. But then our, the paper I worked on today is going to give it to you in a capsule version. So you can, and, and most of it, it will say these stages and what's taking place and give you nothing but scriptures. Okay? By the way, when you go to uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, that Israel will be, uh, all nation will be uh, concerned with Israel and anybody that tries to lift this stone will be hurt and so forth. Now, that is not only a prophecy for what's going to take place with Israel at this late date, right before Jesus Christ returns, but it's really a prophecy for ever since Israel was regathered May 14, 1948. No one thought that Israel could ever survive. No one thought that. And it's because, humanly speaking, it was impossible. The only reason that Israel still exists today and will continue to exist until this time is because God has had his hand on Israel. He brought them there for a purpose. And no one is going to remove them from the land because he has regathered them there, even though it's in unbelief. And they're going to stay there until all these armies mass uh, against them. And he's doing the same thing here. See, what I'm trying to tell you is in the... 1948 war, 1967 war, all the wars that have taken place, God has fulfilled this prophecy in the wars of Israel up to this date. But that prophecy is also can be applied to what's going to take place when the armies have amassed and they're attacking Jerusalem. This prophecy is true for that time also. They would not be able to hold out apart from God's supernatural intervention there. The fourth stage. The armies of Armageddon at Basra. So, so far is what happened. All nations of the earth are going to be amassed in Armageddon. They're going to attack Israel, I mean uh, Jerusalem. But they're not going to take over all of Jerusalem, just about half of it. And now we're going to see that the, the fight, the battle, is going to move south into where Edom used to be, Moab and Edom, to a place called Basra. And that's where it's really going to take place, as we'll see. Let's just look. The main concentration of Jews and the Jewish leaders will no longer be in Jerusalem or in Israel, but in Basra, in the land of Edom, our present-day southern Jordan. Since the main purpose of the campaign of Armageddon is annihilation of the Jews, the armies of the world will move southward from Jerusalem to Basra. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 13 through 14. We have these here. But if you're going to annihilate the Jews, what do you got to do? You got to go where the Jews are, right? Well, what happened to the Jews? Remember what Christ said? The abomination of desolation takes place. I think it's in Matthew 24. He's talking about that if you are uh, 
Don't return home. If you're at work, don't go home. Leave. Flee. Because this Antichrist is going to be on a rampage. It's not safe. And we have scriptures that show where are they going to go. They're going to the land of Edom and Moab. And, of course, some of you have, have, have know about Petra, special place uh, that is in this same area. And some of you have been there. I saw, somebody one time sent me a, a little calendar, and they were riding a camel <laughs> from there. Anyway, so they have to go where the Jews are. And where are the Jews? They're going to be there. They have fled the uh, midpoint, abomination of desolation. Antichrist has already gone into the temple, pronounced himself that he is God, demanding worship from everyone. Everyone has to have a mark of the beast on their head and forehead. All this has taken place. So now he's got to annihilate the Jews, so he's got to go where they are, and they are in Basra. Here is Jeremiah 49, 13 through 14. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, a curse, and all its cities will become perpetual ruins. I have heard a message from the Lord, and, and an envoy is sent among the nations saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. So this is God uh, describing what's going to take place at Basra. This is where Jesus Christ is going to return. A lot of people think he's going to return and touch the Mount of Olives. He is going to touch the Mount of Olives, but that's not where he goes first. And this is what, he, where is he going? He's going to where the Jews need to be saved, and they're not going to be on the Mount of Olives. They're going to be in Basra. This is where he's going to go first. I know y'all, I see a bunch of slack-jawed people out there. Well, that's all right. Just hang on. Jeremiah 49:22. Behold, he will mount up and swoop like an eagle and spread out his wings against Basra. And the hearts of the mighty men of Edom in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. Basra, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, is described as an enclosure, a fortress. The city of Jobab... One of the earliest Edomite kings, Genesis 36, 33. It lies in the mountain district of Petra, 20 miles to the southeast of the Dead Sea. So let's take a look at where this is. It's important for you to get an uh, idea about the, the layout of the land, the geographical location and so forth. So uh, let's do that. I'm sorry, I thought that'd be bigger, but this is the Mediterranean Sea. And up here, you have Megiddo. See that right there? And Jezreel. This is the city of Megiddo. This is the Jezreel Valley. That's where they're going to gather all the nations of the earth. Here is Jerusalem. So they're going to gather here, and then they're coming down, and they're going to go against Jerusalem. Half of the city is going to hold out, and then they're going to move out and come down here to Basra. This is where, as you see, Edom and Moab and so forth. 
I wish I, I had on this map exactly where Petra is. It's in, it's in the same mountain range as where you find Petra today. So he's gonna, he's, they're going to move out and come down here to Basra. So that's the layout of the land. This is what's going to take place so far. Now God is going to help them, supernaturally help them, hold out in Jerusalem. But from the description of Scripture, it appears like he's going to actually come down, second advent, what we see in Revelation chapter 19 describes him and the baptism of fire. Take, all these things will take place. But it's going to be evidently in Basra is where that's going to happen. Now, I'm going to tell you something also here. And just, I might as well do it while I have the map up. We're going to a, a Scripture and it's going to talk about the, the blood running uh, about a horse, the, the height of a bridle. And it's going to say for 200 miles. Now, there is different speculations about what, how this is going to take place. Some would say, well, that's nothing but hyperbole, but why 200 miles? Well, it depends on how you look at it. From Megiddo down to Jerusalem is about 100 miles. And then from Jerusalem down to Basra is about 100 miles. Or another way of looking at it is from Jerusalem to Basra, it's 100 miles and 100 miles back. And I can tell you right now, that's what's going to happen. They, they came down from Megiddo to Jerusalem, then they come down here to Basra. The Lord is going to return and kick their butt all the way back here to Jerusalem, and it's going to be another bloodbath there in the valley of uh, Jehoshaphat. That's what, I'm just telling you a little ahead of time what, what's, 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 take, what's going to take place. We'll get to that verse in a moment, but I just want to give you a, a layout so when we get to it, you'll have kind of an idea. So do you all have a, a, kind of an idea where this is located and how it's going down? Okay. So Basra is about 20 miles east. The fifth stage is the nation, national regeneration of Israel. There's so many things going on here, and one of the things that has to take place is Israel is going to recognize they messed up big time. They're essentially, you might have to say, they're going to repent. And here's the scriptures that, that, that speak of this. This is another quote. When speaking of the basis of the second coming, there are two facets to this basis. First, there must be a, uh, the confession of Israel's national sin in you find this in Leviticus 26, 40 through 42, Jeremiah 3, 11 through 18, and Hosea 5, 15. And I have Hosea 5, 15 on the board for you. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. What is Christ talking about? He came to earth and offered the Jews his millennial reign. And they rejected his reign. They rejected him. And that's what it's talking about when it says, I go away and return to my place. Where is his place? Heaven. Once they rejected him, he says, okay, fine. He goes back to heaven. And he says, he is not going to come back until they say, blessed is he who, with his pierced hands and so forth. He says, until they acknowledge the guilt and seek my face. Now, one of the things that we see in this that's so beautiful about our God is all this is being orchestrated not out of the, 
of a wrath of God. There's going to be wrath, but it's going to be because of justice. But also what he has in mind, he's going to do what it takes to bring Israel to their knees. The Jews who have a, a, a hard-hearted heart to change them and make them look up and finally accept their Messiah. This is what it's going to take. All the armies of the world they're going to be gathered against them. And he's going to allow it to get to a point to where they're so desperate that they're going to seek his face. They probably don't have any, anything else. And you see, isn't it great how God orchestrates all this? He says, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. It's just a shame that it has to come to this. Hard-hearted, Christ-rejecting people. But God loves them enough to do what it takes for at least a measure of them to recognize that they are involved in a big blackout in their soul. They rejected their Messiah. Secondly, a pleading for Messiah to return, and this is in Zechariah 12:10 and Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, and we have that here. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. How long has the house of the Jews been desolate? A long time. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So God, uh, Jesus Christ didn't return to heaven. And, oh no, they rejected me. I'm so upset about this. Oh, I just wish they. Oh, I'm just so my heart bleeds because I want them so bad. No, bunch of milly mouth silliness. Jesus Christ, when he turns, says, okay, you don't want your Messiah, you don't want the kingdom, fine. You just continue to suffer. And I will not come back until you say, blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the way our God speaks because he is in control. And when is that going to happen? That's not going to happen until they look like they're going to be annihilated, wiped out then they're going to do it. Is it too late? Absolutely not. There's a message for us here. How many times are we stiff-necked and would rather sin than obey? Stay in our old wheel tracks. It's so comfortable for us. And God will demonstrate how foolish that is sometimes by adding divine discipline to our bad decisions to where finally we look up and we cry out, that's what he's going to do to Israel only on a much larger scale. The nation as a nation will be saved, fulfilling the prophecy of Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27. Here we have Romans. Here we have that scripture. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that the partial hardening has happened to Israel. Partial Hardening. Not all Jews are hardened their hearts, but there is a partial hardening. So this partial hardening has happened to, the, to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is talking about the interruption. What is the mystery? The church age. Jews had no idea. Old Testament prophets knew nothing about the age we live in. And so it's talking about the, 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 the mystery, which is the church age, because they were wise in their own estimation and they had this hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. We are Gentiles. And we have dominated the Jews for 2,000 years. And God is continuing to deal with the Gentiles and will until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. What's the fullness of the Gentiles? He's offered salvation to the Gentiles, and there is a number. And there is a time that God has decided that he says, okay, the fullness is to, to the top. No more Gentiles. Now I'm going to go back, and I'm going to finish my business with the Jews. And so this hardening is going to happen and the, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. When is the fullness going to be? At the rapture, when we're out of here, that's it. Church age is over. He's returning to the Jews. And now verse 26 says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now when it says all Israel will be saved, when is all Israel going to be saved? Yeah, the baptism of fire. All unbelievers are going to be removed from planet Earth, and they're all there's not going to be anything but believers left, and that includes believing Jews. Here's a quote. The all Israel means just that. Every Jew living at the point of time, meaning the third, uh, the third that are left from the original number of Jews living at the start of the tribulation, Zechariah 13, verses 8 through 9. During the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be slaughtered. The remaining third, <coughs> excuse me, that are left after the tribulation, after the baptism of fire, are all going to be believers. They're all going to be delivered. Any questions? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. All unbelievers. There's going to be a lot of them. But there's going to be a, quite a number that are believers also. And what happens to these? But They're delivered. What happens to them? Well, they're the ones that will populate planet Earth during the millennium. And here is Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Two-thirds of the Jews will be annihilated in the tribulation. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. What about replacement theology? It's bogus. God is not through with, it, with Israel. One third are going to be delivered through it. 
Isaiah 64, 1 through 12, also describes the pleading of the Jews for the second coming. Uh, Psalm 79, verses 1 through 13, and Psalm 80, verses 1 through 19. Um, and I have a note there. Read. Um, I don't know whether I have time to get into this or not, but I guess I will try. You won't believe how many times that I've studied like I did all day today and not even get to what I was I was ready to give you. But it, when we get through, this is the, we're about to get into the sixth stage. I don't want you reading ahead, so I'll go here. Uh, there's still the sixth, seventh, and eighth stages of what's going to take place, and that will probably take most of the next Bible class that we have. Before I even get to the paper that I was working on today, which I'm somewhat proud of because it really distills this into where there's so many... See, what happens in a paper like this, there's so many details, there's so much going on, it kind of blows your mind. And so I've taken all this and distilled it mainly into just giving highlights and Scripture so that you can get a better view, what's, get it all in your mind straight. I guess that we will go to... Let's just go to a Psalm chapter 79... And we'll look at verses 1 through 13. Psalm chapter 79, verse 1. O God, the nations have invaded thine inheritance. They have defiled thy holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of thy servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of thy godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Will thy jealousy burn like fire? You, you see what this is saying? And this is, <clears throat> like I said, this has a, 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 a nearer and a, a further uh, application to this prophecy. But the Jews are being torn apart here and they're asking, how long are, is God going to be angry with us? Well, it's been a long time. The reason that he's still so-called here anthropopathism-wise angry is because they're still rejecting him. Verse 6, Pour out thy wrath upon the nations which do not know thee and upon the kingdom kingdoms which do not call upon thy name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. This is going to be especially true when it comes to the time of the, uh, this campaign of Armageddon because uh, 
this is their last chance. This is where God is going to get those who are most hardened to humble themselves and recognize He is their only salvation. Verse 8. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let thy compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for for thy name's sake. See, this is what the Jews are going to be doing when they are attacked in Jerusalem and, and Antichrist. is in, he's, he's just romping and stomping over the entire world. He has great power. God has allowed him to do this. And now they're saying they're asking the Lord to deliver them. Are they asking that today? They are not. Not as a nation and not just very few Jews are Messianic Jews that have believed in Christ. Verse 10. Why would the nations say, where is their God? Let there, let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of thy servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before thee according to the greatness of thy power. Preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached thee, O Lord. In other words, they're going to get their comeuppance. All those who have rejected God, all those anti-Semites are going to, God is going to deal with them. He's saying, and they're saying, don't forget all this. And God, of course, Jesus Christ doesn't forget anything. He's going to deal with them. Verse 13. So we, thy people, and the sheep of thy pasture will give thanks to thee forever. To all generations we will tell of thy praise. Now when you go into verse uh, uh, Psalm chapter 80, maybe I'll just give you this for a little homework assignment. I'd say that teasingly. But we don't have the time to go into uh, verses 1 through 19 of Psalm chapter 80. But you're going to hear more about this, what it takes about Israel, and what are we, where are we at in our... In our uh, Stages here. This is the fifth stage, the national regeneration of Israel, or you might say when Israel finally wakes up and recognizes that their only deliverance and salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will be calling out to Him, and one-third of them are going to be delivered and saved, even physically. And this will be a good point to stop because... that's the last point in the fifth stage. The next stage is one I like the best, is the second coming of Messiah. But I will tell you this, he will come to Basra, and the description, oh boy, there are some scriptures that nail it. And his description, when he comes from Basra, he is going to be saturated with blood. He's going to wipe out those unbelievers, those demonic horde, they're just going to be wiped out. And then he's going to go back to Jerusalem. I shouldn't be telling you this, but I can't help myself. He's going to go back to Jerusalem and outside the city in there in the valley of Jehoshaphat and what do they call that, that, that uh, Kidron Valley? That's where it's going to culminate and he's going to 
end it there, and then he is going to ascend to the Mount of Olives in a triumphal, triumphantly, and that's when a earthquake is going to take place. That's going to, well, the description. There's never been one like it, and never will be one another one like it. The whole topography of the earth appears to change at that point. <laughs> That's a bit, all this has been there all this time. You just have to connect the dots. And so uh, just hang in there if you've got questions or whatever until we get through the, well, we've got six, seven, and eight stages yet to go through. I'm just kind of giving you capsule form of what's, how it's going to go down. I don't know about you, but I'm energized. I mean, we have a God that is in control he is going to take care of business. And for those who read this and we think, we are so privileged to live in a time when he's already gathered the Jews together. Everything is it's just clicking off. It's going to happen. And we are privileged because he revealed it to us to think, how great is our God? How much praise does he desire? How much does he love Israel? How faithful is he? If he can do all this, can he take care of my problems? What a God. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we are blessed and honored that you thought of us in eternity past to reveal these things to us so we can better know who you are. And all praise and glory and hallelujah for you. And this is just a glimpse. We're reading it in a book, but we will see it come to pass. But we are honored now to revel in the awesome power and majesty and justice of who and what you are. So we pray that you will help us to get our head around these things, that we will be able to explain these things to others so they too will know what kind of God the Lord Jesus Christ is and what our destiny is. And we pray it all in His holy name.